I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. I've got my Ruth Bader Ginsburg candle still lighting it with love and prayers and prayers for calm to ride out whatever we are being asked to ride out again right now. Well, and I just would observe on that note, that idea of writing out, we have a ways to go on this. So it's really important what I say to myself and what I say to clients. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. You know, this idea of pacing yourself. I have a client where we talked about her capacity for outrage. And um, I think about, this is, I have a very rudimentary idea about this from a classical Chinese medical perspective. A, A part of the way to think about the gift of your life and of your chi can be localized in the kidneys. And there is your prenatal jing, your prenatal essence and your postnatal jing. This is my own Western reductive take on those. One kidney is your savings account and your inheritance and your principal. And that's your prenatal jing. And the postnatal jing is your checking account. So in your checking account, you can add to it and you can take away from it. But if you overdraft, on your checking account, then you have to pull from the principal and you can't give back to the principal. So a part of what this time is about with these huge surges on demands for participation, attention and reaction is to not overspend. You know, this idea of the conservation of energy and really of the cultivation of one's energy, however we do it, It isn't that that isn't, for me, I'm not just talking, you know, prescriptively, to really cultivate your energy, not with the idea of when's it going to be over, when's it going to be over, although that's a consideration because of the pitch that everything is happening right now, but to continue to cultivate like this so that you have something left on the other side of it, quote, being over, unquote. I love that metaphor, Carol, because it is so much, I mean, that metaphor, I think, defines in a way a certain course of my life where I was kind of raised to be a political junkie and really was a political junkie and absolutely could have gone a direction of being in D.C. and, you know, being in politics in some form or working on Capitol Hill or something like I could, that could have been a direction for me, but it is so toxic to my system and I think to most people's systems but that reemerged a bit this week where I was waking up at 5 a.m. and knowing, oh, my God, it's 8 a.m. 
in DC, what's the latest? You know, what what else has happened because it's moving at such a rapid speed. And you and I were speaking before everyone joined us this morning about how this chapter is speaking to us right now. There's so much we want to say on it, but I think part of what you just expressed, it sort of spoke to me that it feels like we're at a turning point right now, but it doesn't feel as though it's the end of a turning point or, you know, it's like, but something is different. Something is suddenly different now. And it's different because for me, it, there's a sense of reality returning in small ways when there are, in fact, consequences for negligence, stupidity, and out-and-out willful, I don't even know what is, I mean, how do I say this diplomatically? But, but to cavalier, see- Cavalier, the word that everyone is using is cavalier. Yeah, yeah. No. So to have a sense that there is a return to normalcy, rather, I don't even want to use that term, a return to reality where, in fact, physics exists and biology actually exists. That is just, there's a comfort for my system in that. And I think there's something in this chapter. So today we're exploring the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is right between the gift of magic, the chapter we explored last week, and the magician coming up for the next couple of weeks. Magician is a larger chapter um, and so we're going to do it over two weeks. And this is when we meet Philemon. But we're really in the middle of what is magic. And Carol, you had just expressed a little bit about the feeling that we're, we're seeing Jung shifting again here. You want to? Well, every time I come to the material, I read it. I try to summarize it. I make handwritten notes about it because I like for things to come down through my hands. And I have read and reread and renoted this chapter and Jung has arrived at a place of healing that after intense psychic surgery and coming to terms with illness, medicine, arrival, that he's at the portal of a great mystery, that that's why magic um, presents itself, that he's come to the mystery of time and of the the rhythms of time this and he's come to you know the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths and and he observes that in the past people used magic to manipulate time to be the charioteer and that he did too it's what he knew how to do but now what right now what and so but he i think appropriately and we appropriately are approaching magic and time and magic, which is, is it alignment with what is, which is different than using it to manipulate what you want to manipulate with. So that idea of, of coming to essence, the essence of the moment, that whether it's a divinatory moment or a, a, a worshipful moment is, now that you bring yourself to this point of of curiosity and openness without desiring to impel it or compel it for your own, for the ego's purposes. Now what? What's the proper way to stand in relationship to it? And in this chapter, my sense is he hasn't got there yet, but it's what's taking us to the magician. It's these, these three, these three gifts that his soul has given him war, the reality of war, magic, and religion 
is brought him to this great, you know, potent question mark. How am I going to hold this self that I now understand from my soul's point of view of individuation and integration? Now, how do I hold it not only in this moment, but the moments to come? So I feel like this chapter has a lot of big question marks in it. You know, still for me. It's, it is, I mean, it's a, it's one of those chapters that's very densely poetic and just full of contemplation. Um, And there's a, just a line I want to start with. This is on 391. So we're not going to start at the beginning and um, move all the way through today, but we're going to pull from a lot of pieces. And what I want to start with is just a couple sentences at the top of 391. What suffering must be brought upon humanity until man gives up satisfying his longing for power over his fellow man and forever wanting others to be the same? How much blood must go on flowing until man opens his eyes and sees the way to his own path and himself as the enemy and becomes aware of his real success? You ought to be able to live with yourself but not at your neighbor's expense. You know, it reminds me of one of the pillars of Islam. You shouldn't go to bed with a full belly if your neighbor is hungry. Mm. Yeah, it's just so much of what we are on the brink of, I think, right now. You know, when what used to be the leader of the free world becomes deathly ill or potentially deathly ill by a virus that he was in charge of controlling, not just for his own country, but in fact, in some significant way for the planet. The CDC used to be, you know, the health guidelines for the planet, and it has since fallen to ruin. So there's a way, and this is the return to reality for me, that, oh, biology actually exists. It's not even karma. This is really, yes, science exists. Science is real. And yes, there's a component of karma to it. But it is the distinct opposite in every way from what we are studying with Jung's work and what Jung was trying to do in his psychology to say, if we go down into our deepest selves and we wrestle with our deepest shadow and our deepest longings and hurt and anger and trauma, and in addition to that, we also bring forth what is within us, the beauty, the art, the love, the empathy, the connection. We allow ourselves to become the being we are meant to become without judgment. And that in this section is so profound. And I want to dive into that. But it it brings us to what is magic. And so I want to set up a little bit of where we ended off last, last week, because I think separating these components is really important. In my own reading of this, and Carol, I'd love your thoughts on all this, you know, anything you disagree with or agree with, whatever, it feels to me like there are two or three really specific ways that he's using this term magic. One, as with Isdubar, and I think we spoke about this a little more in the Q&A last week, but in, in contrast to science, when he was engaging with Isdubar, magic is a tool and it's, it's sort of the opposite of rationalism, right? So it is kind of yin science. And that's when we talked about divination and, and practices, right? and belief and faith. But I think the larger thing that he's really speaking to, which we see very deeply in the next chapter, but we explored in the last chapter around him saying, 
you know, if you engage with your own magic sort of, the, or your own work, the magic spreads. It spreads, you know, it illuminates the paths of others. That's purely individuation. You know, whatever that looks like for whomever, if, if we do our own alchemical work, so it's alchemy, which he's bringing forth more specifically in this chapter and next chapter, the science of alchemy that he's recovering from history, truly Jung himself yeah. recovering that from history and understanding it psychologically. But if we do that alchemical work and engage with our own individuation, that is magic right? That is magic. It is transformational. It is transforming the shit instead of letting the shit run amok over society and the world. But the only thing I would add to that, Satya, um, if I come back to, to this particular reading, you ought to be able to live with yourself, but not at your neighbor's expense. The herd animal is not his brother's parasite and pest. Man, you have even forgot that you too are an, an, an animal. What you do radiates for good and for ill. Right. And I think the, the magic component and the word magic, if, it's why I was interested last week in the, in the de- definition of magic, because I think one definition of magic, mage, is wisdom. Mm-hmm. Magic tends for all of us collectively to imply manipulation of things. Mm. But if we're, if part of what Jung is doing and what we're doing here is we're bringing ourselves to the intersection between what we know and what has always been and what might be possible and always becoming, then wisdom is holding still in the moment and not grabbing from the past. I think that that's part of what it is that's going on here. And if in the past you grab for power be the charioteer, steer, dominate, that infects, that radiates out, that influences. But if you realize the impact that you're having, I mean, he, Jung coming to terms, all of us coming to terms with, you know, when you've been sick and you know you've been sick, Mm-hmm. And what it's like when your health begins to return and you begin to see the world in a much, much different way and you're able to be in the world in a much, much different way, that that is as effectively radiant as the illness is. So that, that when he's talking about last week tending your garden and that the magic that comes out of that, it's that individual consciousness in the presence of all possibility has a radiant effect with what it is that you end up choosing. Right. So the difference between choosing illness, which comes from a a certain kind of limitation or choosing wellness, which has to do with a more relational there. They both have to do with distinction and relationship so that the magic comes out of understanding that of constantly bringing yourself to that moment, what, what wants to become. That's right. And, and I love that, that it really is, we'll talk about will, willpower more, but it is, again, it's about the alchemy and kind of surrender to that in a way. There's two, everything you just expressed. I thought I would read two paragraphs here and it's sort of the first one and the last one, but on 389, 
I'm just going to go for this, Carol, but you interrupt at any time. Okay, so I'm going to go from 389 then to 395. Truly, the way leads through the crucified. That means through him to him, it was no small thing to live his own life and who was therefore raised to magnificence. He did not simply teach what was knowable and worth knowing. He lived it. It is unclear how great one's humility must be to take upon oneself to live one's own life. The disgust of whoever wants to enter into his own life can hardly be measured. Aversion will sicken him. He makes himself vomit. His bowels pain him and his brain sinks into lassitude. He would rather devise any trick to help him escape since nothing matches the torment of one's own way. It seems impossibly difficult, so difficult that nearly anything seems preferable to this torment. Not a few choose even to love people for fear of themselves. I believe, too, that some commit a crime to pick a quarrel with themselves. Therefore, I cling to everything that obstructs my way to myself. I just would observe parenthetically here, and you and I talked about this uh, earlier. We in the collective are at this moment where we have to come to ourselves. And we would rather devise any trick to escape because there is torment in our way. It's impossible and difficult that anything seems preferable to this torment, that we could love someone else rather than come to our own and that we'll pick a quarrel with ourselves and with other people. So what astrologers are getting these days, what I'm getting, is we are at this moment where, to your opening observation, we have come to this moment where something is shifting and we're seeing something else. The wave of phone calls I have had from clients is, I feel things that are changing. I feel things are opening. I don't like this. I don't like the the openness. What should I do? What will I do? What can I do? And this is exactly, you know, when you when you look at the astrology, what Jung is wrestling with at this moment, January 27th, 1914, is what we're doing in 2020, is isn't there some other way we can distract ourselves or choose things that keep us from having to come to terms with the garden? Couldn't we please do something else? Right. And of course, if we do something else, the new religion never comes comes forward, right? I mean, the new birth, the new life, the new existence doesn't get born. He says, I mean, to speak to your clients, you know, what am I supposed to be doing? On 394, he says, the task is to give birth to the old in a new time. There's, there's so much in this chapter to keep exploring, but this core of Jung's work, I think of it with Joseph Campbell very deeply as well, but with so many people in the depth psychological space in particular, bringing the old material forward and making it relevant again. I mean, it really guides for me how the Salome Institute functions and and trying to make this work not abstract historically, right? But also not bright and shiny new, that how do we have roots in the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths? Mm -hmm. How do we give birth to the old in a new time? And the same with ourselves, this quality that each of us in a way have existed forever. We know that in all religions, there's all this, this quality of timelessness in all beings. And yet there's also something new. How do we fuse those things and become ourselves? So let me read this last paragraph then of this chapter two. Futurity grows out of me. 
I do not create it, and yet I do, though not deliberately and willfully, but rather against will and intention. If I want to create the future, then I work against my future. And if I do not want to create it, once again, I do not take sufficient part in the creation of the future and everything happens then according to unavoidable laws to which I fall victim. The ancients devised magic to compel fate. They needed it to determine outer fate. We need it to determine inner fate and to find the way that we are unable to conceive. I'm going to read that last part one more time. To find the way that we are unable to conceive. For a long time, I considered what type of magic this would have to be, and in the end, I found nothing. Whoever cannot find it within himself should become an apprentice, and so I took myself off to a far country where a great magician lived of whose reputation I had heard. Of course, that's the cliffhanger to bring us into next week with Philemon. But, you know, again, this idea of apprenticing and finding where do I learn magic? Where do I learn how to transform myself? Where do I learn how to how to how to bow down to the future that's growing out of me instead of trying to force everything in another direction. Again, I think we see right now in the leader of what used to be the free world going in exactly the opposite direction where absolutely everything is willpower, 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 and, and a remarkable capacity for denial and willpower that actually kind of, uh, I think, is worth marveling at because it's certainly not a level of tolerance that I think most people have. But here is the opposite example of what, where we get to with that form of existing and denying the feminine, the symbolic, the unconscious, and all criticism and augmentation that would come from that deeper space, which gets us into symbolism. But let's pause there, talk to Anne for a little bit about will, and then come back. And do you want to just share with us where you're going with this idea of will? Well, what I did this week, as Satya and Carolyn Kelly know, was really dive into Zarathustra because this chapter is full of aspect Zarathustra from beginning to end. I mean, it would take us four hours or all day to even explore a quarter of them. But at any rate, this whole chapter, he's really talking to Nietzsche, and he's not intellectually dialoguing with him. Nietzsche and thus spake Zarathustra is a real soul confrontation for Jung. And it's like in martial arts when you have a very good sparring partner, it's much better than having somebody who's weak. And Nietzsche really was that for Jung, how to take those radical ideas and then out of those find his own way which was different. So throughout this chapter, he's taking the fake Zarathustra, wrestling with what Nietzsche has said, and then turning it around into so many of the things that you have been talking about. Nietzsche was an incredible challenge to him. For one thing, I'll just say a couple of things before Will. He was antichrist. He said about Christ, he really died too early. If he'd only lived as long as I lived, he would have, you know, disavowed his whole doctrine. In fact, he was very immature, which is quite a statement. And of course, as you all know, he talked about murdering God, the death of God. So for him, will, which is one of his central concepts, it's a will to power. And that will to power, in order to understand it, one has to understand that Nietzsche saw 
first of all, he struggled incredible with not being in a feminine. You have this weird thing going on that we also see in our government. But anyway, for him, the only way to overcome the nihilism, in other words, the loss of God, Remember when we're talking, we're not talking now, we're talking at the turn of the 20th centuries. So the death of Christ, the death of God meant the death of meaning. So the only way for Nietzsche to overcome that, the death of God, which was to be the Superman. I don't like that word. It's really Übermensch in German, which means the overman, the superior man. The, anyway, we'll, we'll use the word Superman. The only way to overcome the nihilism of the death of God was to be the Superman. What did the Superman do with his will to power? He says yes to life and all its positive and negative sides. In other words, he's so powerful with his will that he can surpass, and that's really the word, he can surpass the despair that comes with the loss of meaning, which will happen inevitably beginning of the 20th century with the death of God. So his will to power is exactly that ability to live without meaning and still say yes. Whereas for Jung, you can hear it right in the beginning of the first paragraph you read, where he's speaking incredibly fondly and respect, with full of respect for what Christ did. He really lived. He, he walked his talk, essentially. And for Jung, it was much more a question of how to rethink, not how to murder God, not abusively scorn Christianity, but try somehow alchemically to get in there and find its essence, which of course, one of those would be to do unto your neighbor as you would do unto yourself, what, what Carol was talking about in Islam. And let me just pause you there because I think the way that you are putting this for me gets into the visceral quality of Jung expressing how painful it is to go one's own way because he is mm -hmm. going against here all of Christianity, all of Nietzsche, right? A huge component of Western civilization and, and philosophy and all the rest to say, wait, I think there, I think my soul, as he's yeah. deeply on this journey in the Red Book, my soul is telling me something completely different. And it involves wow. acknowledging her and recognizing her and recognizing Elijah and engaging with the serpent and the bird, like all of these components, he's surrendering to the reality of his own unconscious. And that causes him um, you can feel it, I think, in some of these chapters, a visceral disgust and discomfort, but he does it. He surrenders to it. Oh, I think we lost Anne. So let's move, Carol, just from that point to the symbol. Shall we just read a little bit about the symbol on 392? You start with the symbol and then I'll circle back around and then maybe we'll okay. get Anne back in here. So to speak to surrendering to the unconscious and relinquishing the power of will, as we've seen with Salome and Elijah in those early dialogues with Isdubar and all the way through, Jung surrendering that will, that, that quality of consciousness to something else. So we're talking about the symbol here. I'm going to read from the Red Book and then also from Psychological Types. So 392, our freedom does not lie outside us, but within us. One can be bound outside, and yet one will still feel free since one has burst inner bonds. 
One can certainly gain outer freedom through powerful actions, but one creates inner freedom only through the symbol. The symbol is the word that goes out of the mouth that one does not simply speak, but that rises out of the depths of the self as a word of power and great need and places itself unexpectedly on the tongue. It is an astonishing and perhaps seemingly irrational word, but one recognizes it as a symbol since it is alien to the conscious mind. If one accepts the symbol, it is as if a door opens leading into a new room whose existence one previously did not know. But if one does not accept the symbol, it is as if one carelessly went past this door. And since this was the only door leading to the inner chambers, one must pass outside into the streets again, exposed to everything external. But the soul suffers great need since outer freedom is of no use to it. Salvation is a long road that leads through many gates. These gates are symbols. Each new gate is at first invisible. Indeed, it seems at first that it must be created, for it exists only if one has dug up the spring's root, the symbol. That line about outer freedom means nothing to the soul makes me think of I was studying Gandhi and Nelson Mandela's experiences in prison and how both of them and others who, whose writings they relied on felt this freedom being in prison because finally mm. their soul had space to study and study and study. And that the political and, ex, and external pressures that they were constantly engaged with were silent for a time. So that quality of that kind of inner sweetness, I think of it as the feminine but actually taking a deep breath and finally saying, you're here, you're finally paying attention, you're listening, right? So let me read, I'm going to read just a little bit more here. This is from Psychological Types. It is the Collected Works number six, and it's paragraph, I'm going to start here, paragraph 205. He says, for quite, this is Jung, for quite practical reasons, therefore, the symbol must be credited with a not inconsiderable value. If we grant it a value, whether great or small, the symbol acquires a conscious motive force. That is, it is perceived, and its unconscious libido charge is thereby given an opportunity to make itself felt in the conscious conduct of life. Thus, in my view, a practical advantage of no small consequence is gained, namely, the collaboration of the unconscious its participation in the conscious psychic performance, and hence the elimination of disturbing influences from the unconscious. So he'll say this in a little bit again, but this quality of if you give the soul, if you give the unconscious, if you give the symbol space to come forward, it stops tormenting everything and actually becomes a very helpful integrative factor. So thinking about the yin and the yang or the rationalism and irrationalism, if we give that space, it becomes helpful instead of tormenting. So let me skip then and I'll just, this is the last paragraph I'll read here. This is paragraph 212 in Collected Work 6. When speaking earlier of an assignment of value to the symbol, I showed the practical advantage of an appreciation of the unconscious. We exclude an unconscious disturbance of the conscious functions when we take the unconscious into our calculations from the start by paying attention to the symbol. It is well known that the unconscious, when not realized, is ever at work 
casting a false glamour over everything, a false appearance. It appears to us always on objects because everything unconscious is projected. Hence, when we can appreciate the unconscious as such, we strip away the false appearances from objects, and this can only promote truth. I would like to make an analogy, not only to this decumbiture 12th house, but to Jung's long journey that we have been looking at, which is his journey into and almost now out of the 12th house. And your observation about Gandhi and Mandela, because the 12th house is where Jung has been. He has met his soul. In the, and the 12th house in medieval astrology was a place of asylums, hospitals, orphanages, and prisons. It's where people had to go to be contained, to come to terms with something about their unconscious that through their behavior was radiating out into the world, but could not be contained. And so the effects it was producing needed to be held in some way, shape or form. Quarantine, needed to be quarantined. And the whole planet, we're all now forced into this place. We're in prison. We're being asked to come to terms with what we have not looked at. And when Jung started this journey, when we first started out in March, and when Jung started out, this planet, Jupiter, which is astrology's name for expansive growth, Jupiter had just entered his 12th house. The October 13th, 1913 dream of the flood of Europe was the opening of the gates, just very much this language that's not only the gates are symbols, and you're reading from psychological types. The 1913 experience was the symbol of the dream of being flooded was the ignition and the initiation of this process of the spirit of the depths. What we see now is all of this activity of time that has kept Jung in prison. It's not quite done with him, but it's about to reimagine his nature as it opposes his natal sun and his natal Uranus. The sun is rising, and he even says that in this chapter, a new sun is rising. So this idea of now the challenge, how, having made this journey, how do you come back into the world and integrate it? And he's not quite there yet. I think that's why this chapter has so much to Anne's point about struggling with the will and what's the history, not only of my will, Jung's will, but human will. How will I use this wisdom and knowledge to make things go the way I want to go? Oh, wait a minute. That's the lesson I just learned. But I don't necessarily know the way things are supposed to go or should go, right? So, so that 12th house, first house cusp that he's moving, all the planets are moving from 12th house to first house. It's the rebirth from death, right? It's the coming out from the unconscious. And again, kind of how we started, it feels like that's where Jung is right now. And it feels a bit like we'll see where our entire society world, what's shifting now with that, what was it? The full moon in, in Aries we just had that really feels like a massive closure or new beginning on on so much of this cycle since COVID began. Something is changing. I would really like to detour a bit about symbols coming out of the mouth. Uh You know, because here again, I want to re-say on page 392, 
The symbol is the word that goes out of the mouth that one does not simply speak, but that rises out of the depths of the self as a word of power and great need and places itself unexpectedly on the tongue. But where this chapter started was the black serpent that creeps creeps into the body of the crucified and emerged again transformed from his mouth. I saw the black serpent as it wound itself upward It crept into the body of the crucified and emerged again transformed of his mouth. It had become white. It wound itself around the head of the dead one like a diadem and a light gleamed above his head and the sun rose shining in the east. So what that sent me to is that and the later reference to tying the mandrake root to the tail of a dog as medicine we're in the presence of medicine now. We're in the presence of after his soul, he has completely surrendered to his soul, which means he's died to his will and the charioteer. And, and now what, what, what can I learn from the magician? It sent me back in a really powerful way to the images that are available to us in the West, and certainly in terms of the wet, of Western healing, Epidaurus and Kos, which is the island in Greece where Hippocrates learned medicine from the gods, essentially. And this is a very old photo. It's in Carl Karenyi's book about Asclepius, the healer that, that practiced medicine here. And people came from all over the ancient world to be healed here. And this is, um, Karenyi himself entered this before it was, he couldn't go in anymore because, because there's always been speculation, this is where the snakes were. And that all of these outbuildings are, are auditoriums and restaurants and dormitories and clinical places where healing is taking place. But when you arrive at this place, you offer honey to the snakes and what's not clear is if do you sleep with the snakes or do you make an offering to the snake so that the snake as it winds its way through your body and comes out of your mouth that you have what's called the incubation dream and that the symbol is born in you so this is a very old votive from it's now in Piraeus This is the healer putting someone to sleep. This is the incubation. This is the dream. And ask that the patient asks the snake and the gods through the snake, which is connected to everything, to bring a dream that illuminates the illness. And then there is this, which is another votive that's now in Arkino, where you see now that the physician is both treating a patient, but that Hygieia, his daughter, is tending a patient and that the snake is bringing its wisdom through the incubation dream to the patient. This this is sometimes described as the snake licking the patient, but it doesn't look like a lick to me. It looks like a bite. And so I got very interested um, not only in this idea of the gate opening, the door opening, the symbol shows itself, the symbol rises from the mouth, 
with this very old idea of the power of the serpent as in touch with the divine through its connection to reality because it's connected to the earth and that that is where the healing comes from and the other image that really uh, came to mind when i was when i was thinking about the snake that comes out of the mouth was kundalini Mm. So this um, tantric image that includes the black snake Mm -hmm. and the white snake as it winds its way up into consciousness. Mm -hmm. So this idea of that the symbols present themselves and that they don't do it idly, that they do it not not just magic in the magic of, of what shall I do now, but magic in the service of healing symbol in service to healing Mm -hmm. and um i wonder if we could ask sean to say something about this about his observation about you know if this would be a good time to bring in his observation about jung's soul paying him in images sean are you there yeah i'm here i would like to introduce sean for those of you who don't know him sean is a wonderful astrologer in minneapolis minnesota who trained with uh carolyn mace and liz green so Sean's pretty close to the ground with this material. And in our conversations, he made an observation about from the images last week. And now, as we see from the images this week, that I thought was really, it really helped me under, uh, understand the sequence of writing to images back to writing again. And, um, and I just, I wonder if you would say a little bit about that from your perspective. Sure. Yeah, thank you. You know, one of the things just going through the Red Book every week with um, with everybody, you know, I it, sometimes it can seem kind of abstract and all that. And so one of the arcs that I keep track of from the very beginning is that the whole reason he did this was he felt he had lost his soul. And so he went to go find it. You know, and in the early part of the Red Book, where in that section called Refinding the Soul, He says the wealth of the soul exists in images. And then just knowing from my own Jungian studies that in psychological types, he actually defines, you know, certain things. And he says, the psyche creates reality every day. The only expression I can use for this activity is fantasy. And then later in another paragraph in 722, he says, Fantasy as imaginative activity is, in my view, simply the direct expression of psychic life. And so it's this whole engagement with his soul that then next time with the magician, there's a line in particular that I paid attention to when I first read it, um, when I got to that part, is his soul says to him at one point, I give you payment in images. Mm. And we follow this art through the whole thing where, you know, the images start kind of coming in more as we go along and they start getting richer. You know, I thought last week was really, you know, these really, really impressive, rich images, which it's my understanding he painted after he had finished, you know, this whole thing. So he had, you know, this is his soul paying him with imagination, you know, and it kind of shows up in the way the chapters are laid out. Because early on in Liber Secundus, you know, there's the chapter called First Day and Second Day. And then later in the second part of Liber Secundus, it's Nox Secunda 
Nox Tertia and Nox Quarta, which, you know, it's day and night throughout this whole thing. But it's like, day, you know, the day part is struggling with the light of reason, struggling with science and trying to let the rational mind go. And then when he enters the night, he is able to enter imagination much more thoroughly, much, much more richly once he's let go of the day. And I think it's pertinent that he was born in 1875 because, you know, that's after the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason, which praised the light. And in the late Romantic era, which took the arts, you know, to new, quotes heights because it praised the night and worked with imagination. So I, I just always go back to this part, and it almost seems too simple to to stick with it, but that it's what he's doing is he's going into the imagination. The whole thing is him and his imagination and engaging with the unconscious, engaging with the soul as this autonomous figure or, or thing that gives him images when he engages in it. And I think that aids in my reading of what um, the paragraph Satya read about future, um, you know, creating the future is the sense of the will, you know, if, if I want it from my will, I'm actually disturbing, you know, the future coming about. If I don't engage my will, then I'm almost a victim of what happens because I didn't have any say in it. So there's this place where engaging with the unknown, engaging with the soul through imagination, when he says psyche creates reality every day, that's what we're engaging with, which yeah. I think is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Sean. Yeah. That's Sean Nygaard, too. To, um, thank you, Sean, so much for all of that. I think it brings up so much for me, and I'd love to just respond briefly to some of that. And I think we're going to move into Q&A pretty soon, so we're kicking off here. But the reason Jung's work is often, pretty much always, or so often misunderstood, or you know, if you try to put it into a textbook, um, it's almost impossible because it is so complex. There are so many words for all of these things that we're speaking of, right? So Sean's using image, imagination, fantasy, psyche. I mean, there's all these different words that we can use almost interchangeably sometimes, but then they mean completely different things in other moments. And for me, this quality of, of Jung going back to look for his soul has always also been such a, so deeply rooted in Jung going back to look for his feminine that he had rejected, discarded, and that everything about Christianity and Western civilization had told him to discard and reject. And so this is where it comes back to the Red Book and Jung's work being an antidote to patriarchy for me, and also white supremacy, the way that these two things are so deeply intertwined. If we only trust rationalism, if we only trust words, if we reject the imagination, we reject images, we reject fantasy, we reject symbol that comes unbidden, then we are forcing our soul and the feminine into a corner where she must suffer in rage, which is so often what shows up in dreams and so deeply what I feel, again, is the example of our political system right now, what's going on in government, what's going on in our country, is the encapsulation of people who believe only in will, who believe only in 
I mean, it's not rationalism because they also have now, they, they have what, where Jung speaks to, when you completely disregard the feminine, when you completely disregard symbol, it comes back to destroy you. And I will just say, finally, and this is sort of a joke for me, but you know everything that Sean is expressing around this, again, if you go to the opposite, if you don't respect fantasy, if you don't respect what is showing up in the symbol unbidden, I think of it as the crazy ex-girlfriend or rather the crazy girlfriend. You know, I often speak of the soul with clients as the crazy girlfriend, where if you pay her no attention, she will destroy you because you have made her neurotic and angry and starving and and pissed off and she will destroy you and if you in fact do all of those opposite things and include her in decision making from the beginning and give her respect and honor her and listen to her and don't gaslight her and don't make fun of her and don't mock her she will be your greatest champion in the world and she will help your life to flower and to blossom but we see the opposite happening all the time. And my hope is part of this transition. This was my, this is my political junkie sort of component of this. But, but when I saw that Hope Hicks, she's, I think, now being scapegoated as having given the president COVID, but that she was for that 48 hour news cycle or something, the reason that he got sick, this feeling that, that a beautiful young woman finally did him in. <laughs> You know, after countless rapes, after countless sexual assaults, after his own obsession with the beautiful feminine and the way that, she, that he's constantly both in his own psyche and in the world and in, in, in relationship in the planet, constantly disregarding the feminine. And yet he's addicted to it at the same time. That here we have this beautiful young woman who has finally done him in, felt like a little poetic justice and again, a little return to reality in that some way. So this is all these different ways of languaging this, but the honoring of the fantasy as the reality, right? The honor, honoring of image and imagination. And, you know, I, I would love to just to add to that, because this just came, just popped up in, in this conversation, words and symbols. If you think about the flood of words around our collective being, if you think about... Trump's Twitter feeds about pundits, about newspapers and social media, the flood of it. A part of what is emerging is a mistrust of it. You know, what, do our, what does our sense tell us in the collective? Not just this obsession of how will we ever know what the truth is anymore? Who's telling the truth? Although that was kind of the first wave of it. But I think about, about, both Jung's word and you and Sean using the word engaging with the soul, that that's the, the beginning of magic is the in actually engaging it. And that when you begin to dance with your senses, it begins to question what it is that you're being told and what is being structured through language. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I mean, when I think about one of the charts that I did as I was thinking about all of this was to look at Jung's chart and this particular event, the January 27th, 1914, and the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction coming up on uh, the winter solstice. And so here is the spot. This is Jung's rising sign, Aquarius. He's a pioneer. This is the event of the chapter we have just been discussing where time is 
unleashing newness after his engagement with the depths. And this is where we'll be on December 21st. And I was just very struck by when Jung talks about the wheel, the zodiac is the wheel and, you know, things returning on the wheel. I was just very much struck by how we not, we're not replicating Jung's experience. We're not replicating his age, but on a spiral of possibilities, we're definitely at a point where we can engage, where we can engage with other possibilities rather than constantly involving ourselves with what's already been built. Mm-hmm. This Aquarius on that 12th house, first house mm-hmm. cusp. Yeah. Let's just read that last paragraph that you just referenced um, on 394. You want to read that first paragraph on 394? But what is the resolution? It is always something ancient. And precisely because of this something new, for when something long since passed away comes back again in a changed world, it is new. To give birth to the ancient in a new time is creation. This is the creation of the new, and that redeems me. Salvation is the resolution of the task. The task is to give birth to the old in a new time. The soul of humanity is like the great wheel of the zodiac that rolls along the way. Everything that comes up in a constant movement from below to the heights was already there. There is no part of the wheel that does not come around again. Hence, everything that has been streams upward there and what has been will be again. For these, and he doesn't say it, but everything also streams downwards. It's yin yang. Mm-hmm. For these are all things which are the inborn properties of human nature. It belongs to the essence of forward movement that what was returns. Only the ignorant can marvel at this. Yet the meaning does not lie in the eternal recurrence of the same, but in the manner of its recurring creation at any given time. Love that. I do too. Thank you for reading. Thanks um, for the discussion. Is it Q? Let's have some Q&A. Yeah, and let's check in. Anne, do you want to just share any more that's on your heart today before we open it up to everyone? No, I mean, everything you say, of course, is, I mean, it fascinates me how many of those ideas, like eternal recurrence, he even uses those words, were Nietzschean ideas. That was his idea, and he's wrestling with it, but he turns it around to say, no, the eternal return isn't it. It's how the manner in which you direct it. So he's really, as I was saying earlier, sparring with him. He's inspired. The other thing that he takes from him, of course, is this that he loves, is the use of images, visions. Is it philosophy? Is it poetry? And that's brand new, but he's going to have to work it around to his own way. On the other hand, one of the most fascinating parts for me was what I told you, paragraphs two and three, where someone, this is not me, was saying that Nietzsche was Jung's favorite example of failed individuation. Right. Because what he did was he went mad. It's very touching, actually, Nietzsche's madness. He, his final breakdown was in the north of Italy, and there was a horse that was being flogged, and he threw himself around the neck of the horse that was being flogged, as if that was him. 
I mean, it reminded me of our such, you know, of what you've been talking about. And then he collapsed to the ground and he never recovered from that breakdown. But anyway, so as a failed individuation, if you remember in that chapter, what's happening is that there's a tightrope walker going across a, a rope that's stretched between two towers. Later, he says one of those is animal and one of those is the Superman. So he will not, like you, embrace the animal. He will reject it. The Superman is no longer the animal. So there's the tightrope walker walking across, and suddenly out of one of the towers comes a buffoon. And the mm -hmm. buffoon comes up behind him. And he is sort of, suddenly he becomes very angry. Mm -hmm. So the buffoon comes up behind him and then suddenly yells, yells, screams, and leaps over the tightrope walker, who then loses his balance. The pole goes crashing down. He goes crashing down, and he's lying at the feet of Zarathustra. You know, he's dying. He's, he's totally wounded and scarred, and he's lying with Zarathustra, looking up at him, saying, oh, I'm going to hell. I'm going to go to hell. And Zarathustra says, quite calmly, don't worry. There's no God. There's no hell. Your soul's going to be gone before your body dies. Mm -hmm. That is the reference in mm -hmm. the end of that paragraph. It's really, there is no God. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. But what I'm seeing is that, and I'm asking both of you to comment there, is that it isn't that Nietzsche didn't fulfill his destiny, because clearly he did. He reached millions. He still reaches as I said, Heidegger did two whole volumes on him and look at the impact that it had on Jung. So he did in some way complete his destiny just as much as Judas Iscariot did, mm -hmm. or I think I could say maybe Trump even. Mm -hmm. But fulfilling your destiny is not necessarily fulfilling your individuation. That individuation has an element of spiritual maturity, of bringing your life to a spiritual maturity. What, Carol, you were saying about Islam, being of service, serving. So individuation is much, much richer. And I think it gets, that question gets asked by his seeing Nietzsche as failed individuation. You know, oh, and it's wonderful. And it, I'll tell you what it makes me think of. It makes me think of when Jung is, is talking about that you, that you go past the door and you miss it, it reminded me of Parsifal when he first comes to the king and he doesn't ask the question. And when he finally comes, the question is, uncle, what ails you? What, what's wrong with you? It's compassion and it's relationship. It's not, it's not saving the world or being the hero. It's actually getting connected with your heart and with the heart of another. And that, to your point, that you know, destiny is has a kind of heroism to it, but individuation has a connection and an engagement, a deference, with it. a deference and a surrender and a relatedness. It has the ego that can defer and can ask mm -hmm. and can be curious and. Mm -hmm. And I think what you expressed in terms of the difference between fulfilling one's destiny for the collective in that respect and, and individuation is very profound. It's a lot of food for thought for me. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Jung, of course, just 
to kind of log this in the record, right, that Jung did also write two volumes on Zarathustra, on Nietzsche's Zarathustra, Mm -hmm. and was, uh, as you are speaking to, very, very deeply engaged with these questions. So for you to bring in that history and scholarship is profound for us. Thank you for everything you're expressing. Okay, we are going to invite for remaining time your all your questions, comments, and engagements. Hi, Andrew. Hi there. Hi, everybody. Hi, Sadia. I was thinking, a thought came to me just as I was kind of thinking about, you know, whether Trump represents rationalism in the absence of any faith or placement of importance in the or value of the transcendent or the feminine. And I was thinking about how Trump actually leverages untruth. If you've seen the the documentary, The Social Dilemma, which I recommend, they talk about how fake news actually outperforms truth, real news. So that gets pushed by the algorithm because it gets more clicks and engagement. So I think about how people are seem to be hungering for some meaning as they go down these rabbit holes and and become obsessed with these conspiracy theories. You know, you think of Pizzagate or uh, QAnon, they want to believe that Trump is actually a hero that's combating human trafficking and that there's some transcendent meaning that is throughout. I just thought that was that was kind of interesting. You know, that quote from the X-Files came to mind. I want to believe there's some desire for sort of a faith in the transcendent. It's a huge point. I mean, the desire for all of us for meaning and belief is tremendous, right? It drives everything. I mean, it really, again, that's core to Jung's work is we all want meaning. We are all seeking meaning and that the meaning is derived from the unconscious in a relationship to it. The question is, does it get you or do you relate to it? I mean, again, that's my kind of angry girlfriend metaphor. If we bring the unconscious into relationship, it's profoundly supportive in ways that can't be measured. But if you ignore it and suppress it and destroy it and and gaslight it, you know, make fun of it, it ultimately takes over on some level. And I think that is, for me, what we're seeing really profoundly with Trump and this whole contingent is it's neither rationalism nor belief. It is the blowback of of suppressing the unconscious such that it becomes the unconscious in a rabid shadow fashion. And that is powerful as we see with, you know, Darth Vader. I mean, they both have relationship to the force, but one, one is very, 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 very dark and malignant. There's no question there's power in that, but where does it go? For Jung, what Nietzsche does is he scorns and he makes fun of everybody, poets, scholars, women. I mean, the rabble, everyone except for the Superman. And For Jung, I I had written to you, all those bitterly scorned archetypal living beings, and of course, including women, were disavowed by Nietzsche as being part of his own psyche. And there's a wonderful line in that paragraph right there where Jung is saying what you're saying. He says, Nietzsche, in other words, he did not accept them, but he exercised them before others. In other words, it was exactly his projecting and not owning all those similar types that created his madness. That the whole difference between the madness and individuation was the awareness Mm -hmm. and owning the projections. That's all. Absolutely. It's a huge point. Owning the projections. And again, in psychological types, this whole section 
Jung is also making reference to to how yoga is, and this kundalini yoga that you referenced, Carol, yoga is the retraction of the projections from the outer world and the ability for the person to wrestle with projection internally. And so he was always looking for analogs. Alchemy was the one he primarily settled on, but mm-hmm. analogs of various sciences all over the world and, and spiritual practices all over the world that in different ways are science, right? They all start to blend when they get to psychology and the transformation of psychology. How do we pull the projection back from the object and wrestle with it internally? Mm. Francis, hi. Hi. Going back to the sentence at the beginning of chapter eight that Carol referenced a little while ago, the symbol is the word that goes out of the mouth that one does not simply speak, but that rises out of the depths of the self, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, since reading this, I've been pondering in this sentence, in this context, what is that concept of, what is the concept of work meant to mean? And individually, how might any one of us in our own journey with all of this experience and recognize the symbol that, you know, speaks from our unconscious? And it could literally be a word, but I don't think it has to be. And then from the collective, though I'm neither Jewish nor Christian, I couldn't help but think about the early parts of the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, paraphrasing, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was with God. So I guess I'm just inviting your reflections or thoughts about uh, the concept of word um, in this context and what it might mean both individually and as part of the collective journey with the unconscious and finding soul. Thank you. I mean, I will say very briefly that I think part of what you just expressed with the Old Testament is the emergence of consciousness and logos. You know, there's the emergence of consciousness that can reflect on and and speak to the unconscious from whence it came. So in a way, it's the emergence of the masculine, if we want to put it in those terms, or the emergence of patriarchy, ironically. I mean, you know, again, we're going to get this all muddled up. But the problem is then it forgets where it came from. It forgets what it was in relationship with to begin with, and it takes over. I think, again, of Ian McGilchrist's work on the left hemisphere that initially existed to serve the right hemisphere, which very much is in that phrase. The symbol is the word that goes out of the mouth that one does not simply speak, but that rises out of the depths of the self as a word of power and great need and places itself unexpectedly on the tongue, the unexpectedly, so that the right brain uses or used the left brain in Ian McGilchrist's neuroscience work. This is his understanding of it. The right brain used the left brain to communicate its messaging or its experiences, its embodied experiences. And then the left brain went rogue, which is the same patriarchy went rogue. The masculine went rogue and forgot where it came from. That's very much in terms of collective individuation, kind of where we are now. Can our will go back into service of the symbol, recognition of the symbol of the feminine, instead of thinking it's alone? Any thoughts on that? If we come back to the word engage, the word is a, is a form of engagement. But to Satya's point and to the point, to Jung's point, it isn't the only form. You know, what's interesting, Satya and I were going to show this, but let me show this now. This is where we are after, remember all those incredible images last week? It ends with a simple, simple mandala, and then it's pages of script. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's, it's both. Mm-hmm. And the word is easier. I mean, it's easier to, you know, I certainly know this for myself. It's words are easier. Uh, and, and, you know, than the deep relationship with the unconscious or the symbols or the laborious artwork and right. I mean, there's a quality of it that is, it's certainly more ingrained in our culture, but it's faster, it's quicker. And it can believe that that's all there is at the end. I think about in the years that I that I was so so fortunate to work with such a wonderful union woman, and periodically when we would be in the dream space at the end, she would say, "Now go back to your studio and draw that." Right. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, mm-hmm. it really gives you so much respect, so much respect for the, the, the creative process that brings that state into a place where someone else can recognize it through, can recognize the energy of it through the form. Mm-hmm. Right. Or dancing or poetry, yeah. right. Anything yeah. that, yeah. you know, I just to completely complicate this. The one thing I want to say, because it also comes up in this chapter, the opposite is true. If we were at a different space of collective work or for individuals who are at a different place for individuals who are deep in the unconscious rationalism is critical to dry out. Yeah. Right. And to develop that either or. And yeah. so it's, you know, this, the shadow can be different for each person. And, and, and that's where self-assessment really deeply comes in because we are not all on the same path individually. Some people are in more psychotic states and need to do, I think of it as building the fireplace to contain the fire or building the island to get out of the ocean. You need to dry out from too much psychic material. That's very true for a lot of people. But for collectively where we are, the opposite is true because we've been overwhelmed by will and and supposed rationalism that then starts to get rotten. We have one more hand up, but Anne, you want to weigh in on this? I just want to say, I don't think we should forget the word as mantra, as a vibratory. Mm-hmm. No. You no. want to say a little more to that? Well, just that it, it, it's the word as a, as a vibratory sound that goes much deeper than the word as logos, meaning yes. logic. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah, beautiful. And the power of that. The power of words and mantra to heal. Um, hi, Lorna. So I'm just thinking, you know, about all that we're talking about tonight and how this plays out, uh, is playing out in my life on a daily level and perhaps might be similar for others. I really am in a place where I could be really enjoying my life um, because I have time for my creativity and my sculpture Um, lots of things growing in the garden. I'm a New York City girl, um, so this is, you know, all new to me over the last 10 years or so. I'm in the UK right now. Really rich green space community projects and all my Jungian involvements, etc. So I could be really adoring my life right now. But um, I wake up each morning and I don't have joy. I feel the grief. I'm completely and utterly aware of all the horrible things we're doing to all the animals in the world and killing the planet and all the things that we're all aware of, completely aware of all that. And um, so feeling grief for them. And also, of course, what comes next, you know, with the possible chaos, breakdown of all the systems, 
um, apocalypse, etc., when things could be really, really horrible. So all of that's weighing on me and I think everybody else on a daily basis. And so, no, I'm not enjoying the now. Um, I'm enjoying it somewhat, but not as much as I could be. Mm-hmm. However, I do realize that the more I do enjoy it right now and love um, the creativity and the making, uh, that yes, I can be emanating that joy and love to everyone else, you know, through the spirit. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of other people in the world are doing similar things, and there is a rising spirit happening. Mm-hmm. And also, of course, if I do, you know, cherish the now, um, I'll be that much stronger um, if and when chaos does reign. Uh, so I just thought I would share that with people because I've been struggling with it, and I'm. Um, I'll just tell you a little tiny anecdote with my little doggy this morning. I have two dogs. And one um, is convinced that I love the other one much more. So I was just having a little cuddle with my dog, my little dog, Saffron. And uh, he was enjoying it. And uh, we were having a nice little cuddle. Then I saw him like look sideways and get this little paranoid look on his face because he saw the other dog close by. So I just said to him, no, don't worry. Don't worry. He's, he doesn't want your blankie. <laughs> he doesn't, <laughs> he's not bothered about you because he's, he's also convinced that the other dog wants his blankie. So I said, it's just you and me, and we're just having a great little moment with us. You know, I love you and all that. And, um, and I just, and just enjoy the now. <laughs> just enjoy it. Don't worry about him. Just enjoy it. We're, we're here right now, and we're enjoying it, and this is good. And I said, well, a little bit later, I said, I think I need to take my own advice. <laughs> so that's it. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you, Lorna. It's the whole thing, isn't it? Yeah. Deep relationship in the now, not, not knowing what is to come. Yeah. Beautiful. Much more to come, and we're just gliding in with all of you to where this takes us. So love to you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. For more, please visit salameinstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome podcast.